Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Greg Pierce, co-director of the Luskin Center for Innovation at the University of California, Los Angeles, about drinking water. Greg will help us understand who does and who doesn't have access to clean water in the United States and what factors contribute to those outcomes. We'll also talk about the policies and investments needed to expand access to clean and affordable drinking water in the United States, and how this may become even more challenging over time with climate change and the detection of new pollutants in our water supplies. Stay with us. Okay, Greg Pierce from the Luskin Center for Innovation at UCLA. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks for having me. So, Greg, we're going to talk today uh, in very kind of big picture terms about access to clean water in the United States. But before we uh, talk about that topic, we always ask our guests about how they got interested in working on environmental issues. Um, So what interested you in this topic initially, or have you always had an interest in water as a kid, or what kind of steers you into this line of work? Yeah, so I have to say I didn't have interest in this as a kid besides growing up swimming quite a bit. It was really after undergraduate getting degrees in economics and history realizing uh, I was for a time contemplating doing a PhD in Russian history, realizing I wanted to do something a little more practical and impactful, uh, and and turning my interest to international development, and then realizing how many people in the world didn't have access to clean water. Once I started to understand that, uh, I sort of couldn't unsee it, and I've been working on it ever since. But I am a, a social scientist, I would say, through and through, who's come to the environment and water specifically. Yeah, that's really interesting. Where did you grow up? In Orange County, California. Uh-huh. Great. Yeah, not a lot of water around there, I suppose. Except for the ocean, I guess. A lot of neighborhood pools in the ocean, but yeah, not otherwise no. <laughs> right. Cool. Well, um, so let's start talking now about this topic of um clean water. And as you mentioned, you know, obviously this is a huge issue all around the world, but I think our conversation we're mostly gonna focus on the United States. Um, you know, most of us in the United States, or at least many of us, um, and other high-income countries, we often take clean water for granted. Um, but uh, access to that uh, safe and affordable water is not at all universal, even in a rich country like the U.S. So can you start us off by giving us a little bit of a high-level overview on how many people in the U.S. lack access to safe and affordable water and how that problem might be distributed differently across different regions or different demographic groups? Yeah, so this is a a big question. I'll try to give a a big but also concise answer and and first back up a little bit and say that the terms safe and affordable water do map on to sort of generally accepted notions and some legislated definitions of a human right to water. But I would add, and I'll add in sort of my comments here, a a dimension not only of, of safe water, affordable water, but also accessible water. And also note that the U.S., is not a party to international declarations of human right to water, doesn't have a national sort of human right to water or I'd say composite water equity definition. Some states do. Um, And in a way, we know less at the household or certainly individual level about human right to water access or or water equity in the U.S. than we know in the context of a lot of low and middle income countries 
that make collecting data on these attributes for actually 25, 30 years now. That being said, uh, if you break it down in terms of, again, accessibility, safety, and affordability, uh, I'll start with accessibility and first note that, and there's some, been some very recent studies that have documented this, that approximately 2.2 million folks in the U.S. don't have in-home water access. They don't have the piped infrastructure and they don't have water flowing through those pipes. Uh, a lot of those folks are located on uh, sovereign tribal lands, as well as pockets of, of folks, certainly even in, in our largest cities, uh, who are unhoused or, or in unconventional housing settings. I also want to note that we actually don't know much about the approximately 10 to 15% of the population who are reliant on private wells. They're not unregulated drinking water systems. And we have about 15 to 20% of the population who's on, on sewered or, or on septic tanks, essentially. When it comes to safety, we know a lot more because we have a Safe Drinking Water Act at the federal level that was enshrined in 1974, really parallels Clean Air Act and also the Clean Water Act. But the Safe Drinking Water Act is what regulates the 50,000 public water systems in the U.S. I do want to note there that we have a lot more drinking water utilities or drinking water systems than we have even wastewater systems and certainly than we have in the energy space. Each of those systems, uh, whether you're a mobile home park serving 25 people, and there are many of those, all the way up to your uh, municipal system that serves LA City or New York City, has to comply or is mandated to comply with, I believe it's now 98 different sort of water quality constituents. Uh, you have to be below uh, what are called maximum contaminant levels that are based on, on health-based epidemiological studies. And we know, we have recent estimates, essentially, that about 7 to 10% of water systems fail to comply with health-based water quality standards on an annual basis. Probably about half or a little less than half of those are endemically uh, failing to comply. So I'd, I'd really probably give that lower percentage who are not providing safe water on a consistent basis. But again, we don't know much about private well owners. And when we do studies uh, in isolated fashion, we find upwards of 25 to 30% of those folks have water that's equivalent to unsafe under the Safe Drinking Water Act. When it comes, though, to talking about regional variability, it's actually, <laughs> it's, it's a hard question to answer on, on safety. And essentially what you find is it really depends on the contaminant and there's really nowhere in the U.S. that is doing really, really well or really, really poorly. Uh, so if you look at arsenic, you're going to see one pattern. If you look at nitrate, uh, you're going to see concentrations in agricultural areas. If you're looking at lead, it's mostly going to be in core urban cities in uh, northeast, southeast, midwest of the United States. Disinvestment byproducts, you'll get a different answer. So it's quite varied. Um, and we could perhaps talk more about that later. And then last but not least, when it comes to affordability, we don't have a good answer. <laughs> um, we don't know what people are paying for water across the U.S. in any sort of holistic fashion. And in some ways, I would say, and again, perhaps we could talk about this more, 
that water has generally been underpriced. And the problem is not so much the general level of, of drinking water, but again, reflects that there are 50,000 systems in the U.S. For the most part, they price water separately, and some are regulated by utility commissions and other mechanisms, but they really have a lot of discretion and some have a lot of constraints on, on how they can finance. So there's quite a bit of variability what you'll be paying for the same amount of water, even if you're in one part of a county versus another, and there's some really, really extreme water rates out there. The other part of affordability that I think is coming more and more to light, especially in the last 10 years and even more so during the pandemic, is not so much that the price of water is too high, but that low-income households still can't pay it and that there has to be affordability support uh, because of the effect on, on, on sort of the marginal aspect of folks' budgets. And if you don't provide relief and let people fall into debt or shut them off, that is a affordability problem that's being compounded into a health and livelihood problem. Yeah. Well, wow, that's a fantastic overview. And it's, you know, it really highlights the complexity of these topics and the and the many dimensions uh, that are important here. We're obviously not going to be able to touch on all of them. But, uh, you know, just one of the things that stands out to me as you responded to that question is the the amount of times that you had to say, we don't know. Uh, and it just reminds me of conversations I've had with friends in the past who work a lot on water systems. I'm someone who works a lot on energy systems and energy. We have pretty good data on energy stuff. It's not perfect, but it's pretty darn good. And it just strikes me that, uh, you know, folks working on water issues, this lack of data availability seems like a kind of a fundamental challenge. Does that strike you as being true? Oh, absolutely. And I would say there's a couple of reasons for that. Again, I mean, one of them is that water, we like to think, water's special and uh, there are 50,000 systems. And so it's inherently difficult to collect data across those 50,000. But also at the federal level, we've taken off questions from U.S. Census products and related sort of surveys that used to be there that gave us a better picture on some of these attributes. And yes, we don't have anything like uh, we have in energy and housing and transportation in terms of questions on the census or designated surveys at the federal or state level. Also, I know everyone likes to say issues are understudied, but if you try to look back for studies on U.S. water equity or water equity in Europe in the 1990s or even the 2000s, even a decade ago, you will find very, very little there's a lot more attention now and a lot more people studying this issue, working on this issue, but it has really been the last decade where attention to this has ramped up. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's uh, probably a factor that's going to make it difficult for you to answer this next question, uh, but I'm curious to find out. And that question is whether we know uh, over time whether these challenges of accessible and safe and affordable water in the United States have you know, those challenges in general gotten better or worse over time? And I'm sure there's a lot of complexity to this question, but I'm hoping you can maybe try to sum it up for us. Yeah, of course it's complex. And I think if I was pushed on an overall answer to that, I would say maybe controversially that it, it has been getting better, but we think it's been getting worse, partly because of what we just talked about, that there haven't been a lot of studies. We don't have baseline data and we're sort of discovering uh, places where there are shortcomings all the time, and also our data are getting better um, to, to track that. 
But really, the answer would be, it depends on which dimension of the human right to water or water equity you're looking at. If you look at accessibility, I would say that the data are pretty clear. Uh, if we're talking about just folks who are connected uh, to systems and have water running through pipes, actually, we've reduced the percentage of folks who, who don't have that uh, by half since 1970. And we also have more folks who are connected into regulated systems aren't reliant on you know, private wells and, again, septic tanks than we have in the 70s. That being said, the I think the raw numbers are about the same, and it's difficult to move forward and, and, and see a huge decrease in those populations getting connected over time. And I also say on accessibility, we're really seeing new impacts we've never seen before, systems that used to be perfectly reliable due to climate change shocks. When it comes to affordability, I'd say it's pretty clear the answer is it's, it's getting worse. But again, it, that's coming from water being too cheap, historically way too cheap. And, and in some ways, even leaving aside climate change, uh, the rise in the price of water is making up for lost time under investment in water systems that was absolutely necessary. And your average you know, middle income, high income, or non-residential customer has to be paying more for water than they have been historically. Um, that being said, again, um, our understanding the issue of affordability has, has really risen um, and the attention to the issues of debt and shutoffs has, has really picked up in the last few years. And again, I'm not sure that issue has been getting worse, but the salience of it as a resident, we've come, I think, around to the understanding that we need to be supporting affordability, even though it's a relatively small part of most folks' budgets, particularly for low-income households in, in core urban areas. And then last but not least, with respect to quality or safety, this is where I'd say it's been getting better. It's certainly gotten better, although it's not as easy to see as it is on the Clean Water Act side. Um, it's been getting better since the Safe Drinking Water Act passed. Um, but it's also the problem has been expanded while we've kept sort of the same baseline standard. So I think we've gone from 26 contaminants being regulated when the Safe Drinking Water Act was enshrined to, I believe I said, 98 uh, now, also, our detection is getting better uh, around contamination. Our reporting and compliance is getting expanded. And we're discussing uh, adding new contaminants to sort of the primary list that would probably increase the size of the problem uh, by a third or maybe even a half, namely PFOS. So, again, I would say things have been getting better, but certainly perception is that they've been getting worse. And a lot of the the reason why that is, is because of sort of the way we measure things. That's really fascinating. Um, another really big picture question, which I recognize is sort of unfair to ask, as many of these questions are, I'm asking you to cover so much ground. Um, but, you know, this next question is about some of the underlying causes of the challenges to accessibility and safety and affordability. Can you point us to what you consider some of the most important drivers of, uh, of these challenges across the U.S.? Yeah, so the main three, of course, you know, causes are in many cases overlapping and thus indistinguishable. 
um, with precision. But the main three causes, I would say, are poor planning, sort of neglect, and then exclusion. But again, the, even the line between those three phenomena, unless you're talking about a, a place like Flint, it isn't always clear. But I would start with the biggest problem is simple poor planning. And I say that as someone who's in an academic planning department. Uh, but it's essentially, again, we allowed and in many ways encouraged the formation of small water systems that if we'd had a, just a little bit of foresight, we would have seen are unsustainable and are increasingly becoming unsustainable due to climate change. But even leaving that aside, in many cases, since they're reliant on groundwater uh, and overextraction of groundwater, weren't going to last very long. Then I think there are a lot of cases of, again, it's hard to quite tell, but implicit exclusion or neglect, including um, a lot of core urban areas where we haven't excluded low-income communities of color from infrastructure, but we've underinvested in those serially over time, including Flint, although, again, things went far beyond that in Flint. But Jackson, Mississippi, a lot of just core large urban areas in the Northeast and Southeast Midwest of the country. Then we come to plenty of cases, although I would say most of them are relatively small and are are hard to see until you start studying them. Um, Cases of overt exclusion, particularly of communities of color, sort of on the margins of large systems, particularly in peri-urban or ex-urban areas, uh, where small communities don't get grafted into large systems, either at the outset or when systems expand over time. But there's also a large phenomenon that's not just related to race, but it's related to class, where particularly we see types of housing developments that aren't viewed as desirable. For instance, again, mobile home parks um, that aren't connected in to larger water systems, even there, though sometimes they're within the boundaries of larger water systems or right next to larger water systems. But cities or, or water systems don't want to include them. But you also see sort of the overlap between class and race with uh, farm worker communities and other types of uh, sort of small small communities or, or dwellings. Last but not least in terms of major causes, and of course I could go on and on, I would say that there is a sizable portion of, of folks who don't have uh, you know safe, accessible, affordable water uh, due to what I would call self-selection. They want to live off the grid, uh, particularly rural, um, typically white communities, majority white communities uh, that haven't want to be included in public infrastructure, don't want to interact with the government and um, have really poor water as a consequence. Some of them now are, are you know, looking to be grafted in as they see the impacts of climate change shocks. But in some cases, there's still resistance. And that's a particularly tough issue to tackle. Yeah, that's fascinating. And as you say, so much um, nuance, I'm sure, is encapsulated into each of those issues. And we're so grateful for you to, for coming on the show and giving us these really high-level insights. Um, a- another very high-level question that I'd love your take on is whether we have a good understanding of the scale of investment that's needed to address um, some of these challenges that we're talking about today when it comes to 
expanding access and affordability to clean water. I, I believe there have been investments in water systems in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that I, I think were pretty substantial, um, but my suspicion is that they're far from sufficient to meet the scale of the problem. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I think I'm contractually obligated to agree with you as a representative of the water industry, uh, <laughs> but but certainly, and there is, I mean, you can see some striking graphs of the level of federal investment in water systems compared to energy and transportation systems since the 1970s. Basically, it's fallen off a cliff, um, and, and local water systems are locally financed. I think it's around 90%. Uh, there is the uh, quote-unquote state revolving funds that have been operated by the EPA and then are sort of delegated to the state level in every state over time. And a lot of the IIJ money is is routing through those. But going back to sort of the overall question, I think we have some pretty good estimates and there are new estimates coming out very recently that give us a better picture of understanding the scale of the investment. Again, when you're talking about accessibility and those 2.2 roughly million people who aren't connected into any system, um, again, primarily on tribal lands and federally designated colonias along the US-Mexico border and, and sort of interstitially within even core urban areas, a recent estimate has come out saying it would cost 50 billion to connect all those folks, but also that benefits would be about four times that. We don't have a good estimate of the cost of grafting in even a substantial portion of those who are reliant on private wells and you know may have underperforming or inadequate levels of access. We don't know where all the private wells in the country are with any level of precision. So I don't have an answer there. But when it comes to getting all the regulated systems, and again, we have 50,000 up to compliance on the safe dimension of the human right to water, we do have a pretty good estimate or, or pretty good estimates that land somewhere between 50 to $100 billion in, in present day terms. Uh, $50 billion would be an estimate that's really focused on the endemically violating or substandard systems, whereas $100 billion uh, would would be on the end of, of tackling every system that's out of compliance um, sort of on a occasional basis. And that 100 billion number is really coming from an EPA effort, or I should say it's, it's my, a little bit of topping up of um, uh, the last time the EPA did an assessment on this matter, which was five years ago. They're currently updating it right now. The estimate in 2016 was was 83 billion, um, and I imagine when they come out with the new estimate, it'll be closer to 100 or above. Um, that being said, I, and I do want to mention this again that if we add in some of the contaminants that are the EPA has recently announced, maybe on the primary list that every system is obligated to treat out, namely PFOS, I wouldn't be surprised if we're increasing that amount by 50 to 100 percent. Yeah. That's fascinating. So something definitely to keep an eye on and um, yeah, could substantially add to those costs. So um, uh, just a couple more questions, Greg. This one more kind of big picture question for you and then maybe a small picture one. 
So when you think about the tools available to address these challenges, you mentioned how you know most of the funding for these systems comes from uh, local sources and primarily in the form of property taxes, I'm guessing. Um, what are some of the most important policy options that can you know help to deal with this? And do you, what level of government do you see that coming from in a, in a perfect world? Is it coming from the federal government? Is it coming from states? Is it coming from reform of local property tax systems? Or is it all of the above? Well, I want to start by saying that the primary financing at the local level is directly through rates. Um, so property tax gets involved, but it's it's user fees, rates and charges um, that constitutes the bulk of, of the local financing. When it comes to important sort of policy reforms, pretty much all the action currently is at the state and local level. The federal government, like I said, has really backed off in many ways. Um, involvement, it's certainly still the, the regulatory body, but it certainly hasn't invested a lot until very recently in local water systems. And I think would need to, uh, speaking just from my own view, would need to put in another decade of concerted effort support and funding to really take a heavier hand on 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 policy although it's it's being quite you know in in the current administration um, things have changed and it's playing a helpful role now but most of the reforms are delegated to states they have primacy over them as it were i think with one exception so it's really all at the state and local level and the first one that everyone's talking about is the physical consolidation or the grafting in of small underperforming systems that aren't providing safe, accessible, affordable water or, or private wells into larger systems that are highly performing. This requires, and, and states do fund these types of efforts. I think they will require funding. Mandating them doesn't do much, um, and in many cases isn't legal. Um, but also the physical consolidation is not a panacea and estimates, for instance, uh, based on work we recently did in California, is that you could only feasibly physically consolidate about 50% of the systems that are poorly performing. So beyond that, I think next I would mention what's variously called managerial consolidation, um, shared management models, um, ways to get to economies of scale that don't involve physically integrating infrastructure. There's a variety of players that have a role. I think investor-owned utilities have a role there. I'd like to see public systems, publicly owned systems, which do provide the majority of the water in the U.S. I think it's above 80%, get more involved, although currently they don't have the incentives. Uh, but you also need sort of small-scale operators, uh, new entrants into the field, and there is some opportunity there for technological or sort of pure engineering innovations, uh, although I think that, again, is relatively limited compared to what you see in energy and transportation, just much less telecoms. Then the, the third uh, intervention or sort of policy reform that really does require states uh, to loosen their standards or uh, broaden them is sort of the inverse of physical consolidation or the traditional way of building a treatment plant, even for a, a very large system. And that's uh, allowing and helping um, individual homeowners put in what are called point of use or point of entry, basically end of the tap filters 
um, rather than thinking about a centralized solution, again, purely due to cost. This is very, very common um, and really is the preferred or only solution in many low and middle income country contexts for unsafe water. But in the U.S. is really um, hasn't been deployed broadly, I think, partly due to issues of perception, but also government hesitance um, around public health. But given the counterfactual um, is that for many small rural communities, they don't have another option. They're buying bottled or hauled water for their drinking needs. I think we need to think more liberally. And I know governments are thinking more liberally and we need to see those deployed over time. The last thing I'd mention, which is a little wonky, is just the need for different types and a, a better quality of technical assistance. Technical assistance simply to help small systems, which again, in many cases are one or two person operations, apply for funding that exists. Right now we have a big problem, especially with IIJA, in that there's a lot of funding that needs to get out the door quickly, but there's not enough systems who are able or uh, yeah, ha- have the capacity to apply, fill out the paperwork to get that funding. Uh, but we also need uh, new types of technical assistance, uh, folks who form sort of social businesses to help small systems operate over time uh, without the profit margins they may have been used to in in the past, um, as well as uh, actual evaluation of the effectiveness of technical assistance and the effectiveness of the state revolving funds on the drinking water side, which has not happened to my knowledge, in contrast to, for instance, um, plenty of evaluations of the effectiveness of investments on the Clean Water Act side, including, I believe, some folks from RFF. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it really dovetails with um, some of the things that I've been seeing on the energy side of things when it comes to kind of local government capacity and ability to access some of those funds uh, from IAJA. Um, wow, so many uh, really great ideas there. And Greg, I, I would love to talk to you more about so many questions, um, but uh, but we're about out of time. So I want to move us to our last question, which is uh, the top of the stack segment, uh, where we ask you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard that's related to the environment or maybe not related to the environment that you think is great uh, and you think our listeners would enjoy. So, um, Greg, what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Yeah, so I have two books at the top of my literal stack, and I'll be quickly describe them here. The first is Waste by Catherine Coleman Flowers, which is an autobiographical but non-fictional account, particularly of her um, first growing up and then really doing advocacy around wastewater equity or sanitation inequities, uh, particularly in, in Alabama, but more broadly in the Southeast and U.S. Recognition of sanitation inequities is becoming better understood in the U.S., and I think there's going to be momentum around trying to work on that. It's a great sort of primer and very um, yeah, intuitive primer to those issues and the impacts they have on folks who don't have sanitation access. Then another book, I'm not sure if I'd recommend it. <laughs> I mean, I like it, but it's grim. It's it's called The Water's Knife by Paolo Basagalupi, which is a dystopian account looking out, I'm not sure how long from now, around management of the Colorado River and essentially the yeah, the extreme aridification of the U.S. Southwest and the extreme lack of water supply, which when I first picked up 
the book e- even a few months ago. I'm, I'm working through it slowly. I thought, well, this uh, so much of this is ridiculous, and I still think a lot of it um, <laughs> is far fetched. But it really does strike a chord uh, when you look at the issues we're dealing with in the U.S. Southwest, and particularly the situation around the Colorado River. Yeah. Well, fascinating book topics. And um, I'm sure that many of our listeners will be super interested in both of those suggestions. And I just want to say thank you one more time, Greg, for coming on the show and answering these like really ginormous questions, uh, many of which were really too broad to try to answer in such a short period of time. But I think you've done a great job introducing us to many of these topics, and hopefully we'll be able to dig deeper on them in the weeks to come. So one more time, thank you, Greg Pierce uh, from the Luskin Center for Innovation at UCLA. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks again for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.